Mick, why don't you start by introducing yourself? You studied initially as a meteorologist, right? Well, you, you tell your story instead of me telling your story. Oh, uh, I grew up with a passion for the natural world around me and I wanted to be an astrophysicist uh, and enrolled in a PhD and such and ended up with a master's three years later wondering what do I do with my life. So I kind of fell into meteorology huh. in the first instance. Um which again was a distraction from then my desire to be ordained in the Anglican Church, which didn't happen either. So <laughs> instead I've ended up in a funny kind of in-between ground, firstly being a meteorologist and doing my PhD and studying the climate in a more formal sense and then thinking how does my theology integrate with that. So yeah. being the meteorologist with a, a background in theology, I got all the gigs of can you come talk about climate change, can you come talk about climate change. So... Uh, three books later and a bunch of papers and this, that and the other and I guess I'm a uh, active amateur and, and now I'm studying theology formally again. I think um, Mick and Claire Dawson's book, uh, A Climate of Hope, um, Good News in Our Warming World, is one of the best books out there internationally if you are interested in an integrous position as a Christian when it comes to our ecological crisis and how to think about it biblically, I really highly recommend that book to you. And the, the follow-up stuff that you've done as well in terms of um, uh, your book on um, the Good Samaritan, which name is alluding uh, A Climate it, of Justice. A Climate of Justice. Um, these are a, a brilliant books, so I'm, I'm really glad that um, we've got Mick with us tonight to open up Romans 8. Um, Dr. Danny Zachariah. Um, Zacharias? There you go. Oh, <laughs> Dr. He Danny. Said twi- he said it wrong three times now three from times. stage. I was offended every three. Uh, know, ho- hopefully Dave can edit something in. Um, <laughs> Dr. Danny Zacharias, um, you're not from this neck of the woods. What's your background and um, your work as a... Uh, a, a biblical scholar, what's been your particular expertise? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, which if you can imagine North America, it's like dead center. Uh, very cold there during the winters, uh, very hot there during the summers with a lot of mosquitoes. And uh, I grew up and didn't really know what I wanted to do in high school, really hated it, but that was during the time when I uh, came to faith mm. and went to a one-year Bible school in Edmonton and uh, said to myself, if I can figure out a way to do this, study the scripture and and make a living, that's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I came back and I, I did an undergrad at uh, Providence College. And during that time, uh, met my wife, got engaged, and, and then decided I for sure wanted to do the route of going to a Ph.D., with the aim to teach and ended up in Nova Scotia to do my uh, graduate degree Mm. and ended up doing two graduate degrees and then deciding what to do for a PhD. Uh, They offered me a a job teaching and so I ended up doing a a part-time PhD at a distance with Mike who was just here. (laughs) I started with him in Scotland at Highland Theological College and uh, and then when I was halfway through he ended up coming back home which I know he was really eager to do. Uh, to be close to family, both their families, him and his wife, and finished up uh, with a guy named Jason Maston, who right after I was done, he then moved to Houston Baptist. Um, but all the while, I was I very quickly became full-time, and mm-hmm. now I'm the professor of New Testament studies at Acadia Divinity College. And the reason I'm here uh, in Australia, the one with the funny accent <laughs> in the room, is... Um, 
I've been connected for a number of years with Nate's Indigenous Learning Community. Nate's uh, is North American Institute for Indigenous Theological Studies, but now we just call it Nate's all the time because we're now beyond... Aussies and Kiwis yeah, are involved now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we figured let's just stick with the acronym we have and, and focus on uh, Indigenous Learning Community. Um, I'm Cree on my mom's side, mm. and uh, my dad's Austrian, and and so I grew up in a... In a family, well, maybe you're going to ask me about this, or I don't know if you want me to go. No, no. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I grew up in a family that was very devoutly uh, religious. I always, I always tell people that no one could sing out, no one could outsing the Gaithers, or only the Gaithers could outsing my family. Like I grew <laughs> up, uh, even when I wasn't a Christian, listening to the old gospel songs around the mm. piano and guitar, and and uh, and it wasn't until I was a teen that I became a Christian. Um, and and they didn't really acknowledge anything about their culture. Uh, mm. My my grandparents and their parents uh, had to. There was assimilation processes that were in place yeah. in the government. And my mom and her brothers and sisters faced a lot of discrimination when they were children. And so that that pushed those things down. And it's really been. Uh, my cousins and myself, uh, some of my cousins and myself, who've started to ask the question, you know, what did, what, what were we forced to give up, and are those yeah. things things that we need to bring, uh, bring back and celebrate about ourselves? And I've been the one because I'm the the scholar that's thought uh, theologically about what does it mean to be an indigenous follower of Jesus. And yeah. So, um, I had that in the back of my mind for for many years, but when you're doing a PhD and you have a family and a job, there's no room for anything else. <laughs> so it really <laughs> wasn't until I finally got my PhD behind me that uh, I really started in earnest more to to think through that those those things, and and I fell into the Nate's group, and that's that's been my form, formative community. And I've been appreciative to Nate's this week, allowing me to be the the only white fella in the classroom and I've been nothing but welcomed. It's been a phenomenal kind of space for me. What is the importance of, some people would say, oh, that's interesting given your background, uh, but do you think it's only a personal thing in terms of recovering First Nations ways of seeing the world and being informed theologically by that? Or is there an importance to a larger body of Christ that needs to be talked about because um yeah. how many other people are first nations here so uh, if we're not going to listen to this as a, it's an interesting part of danny's journey mm. why is the work that you're doing so important to the larger body of christ regardless of our backgrounds yeah so i can i can recount what i said on the first day of the class after we went around and introduced each other and and i said if you can imagine this is kind of a microcosm of our churches or of our church, you know, national, our church global for so long, you were the only one that had the microphone. Yeah. Um, you were the one who was, and by and large, uh, biblical studies and theology is still predominantly written, uh, by the West yeah. and, and what is now not the majority, uh, church. And so we need to recognize that there are people around the table and that we have valuable things to say. And that includes all of us. So mm. we should be listening together and learning together. When so much of what has gone for biblical teaching has been a Western perspective on the Bible, um, it's that whole thing that fish don't know they're wet, right? I, I be, 
it's easy for a lot of people in my position to go, that's an interesting side kind of thing you got going on. How, how do people who are melanin challenged like myself mm-hmm. um, actually start to create the spaces where your voice is heard rather than spoken over? Well, I think it's just enter, it's, it's, a, it's a posture, right? Mm. It's a posture of, of listening and speaking in turn, but then listening again. So, you know, you've, you've modeled it well in class. Uh, the fact that, you know, we, we sit around here and ask genuine questions to one another and those, uh, but the, the issue is the, is the, is the relationship building and the, and the desire to listen and learn and walk together. Mm. Um, everything is, everything is about that circle of relationship mm. and, and we're invited in, into that relationship together. And we have the privilege of being in a relationship with the creator as well. Yeah, in Christ. Mick, I'm aware that in certain church circles, um, much like uh, the voices of our sisters and brothers who are First Nation people, uh, the voices of the rest of creation that is other than human has also not been allowed in the sanctuary. Um, as a scientist, you also face that your profession is sometimes seen as a threat by the church since the Enlightenment um, by parts of the church that... Um, are committed to modernist readings, fundamentalist readings that are threatened um, by what the early church wasn't threatened by, if you read um, the early church fathers. How, how has your profession as a, a, a scientist, um, how has that been received by the church? And what do you think is the importance of the church actually that this isn't seen as a side interest for those who might go into the sciences. Why is this an important discussion that needs to be had by all of us? We were having a discussion just beforehand. It's all about getting back to what the text really says, um, which might sound like a very um, presumptuous or arrogant statement to make, but um, we've been talking all around about the the, uh, dominant white and, and, let's face it, male model of understanding the world, uh, and it, it does exclude so many voices. So... Um, for me, listening to women voices, listening to you know non-binary gender voices, listening mm. to nature—it's all part of the same process of of coming under God and coming under um, understanding that my way of reading things is not the only way, and in fact, it's probably not the best way. Um, <laughs> and in fact, we were having this conversation before. I'll probably get to your, your question properly in a minute. Was reading a Jewish scholar on Genesis chapter one? Mm and understanding that as liturgy and then reading about Aboriginal ceremony and seeing how they line up so perfectly well together mm. and then thinking, where have we gone wrong? Um, Which I, is a tragedy when we try and squeeze science out of a text that is supposed to bring us to worship and uh, we ask it to do what it was never designed to do and we miss what it is there for and we're not formed in it, which is something that repeatedly happens and people often miss that actually what you're seeking to do from the text is getting in the way of what the text is is actually saying. Yeah, precisely. I think there's a white Western Christianity has been insecure for such a long time. Uh, They're worried about, and, and I guess with some good reason when you read the the incredibly shallow and naive readings of Dawkins et al., the bashing the church over sure. the head with science and then Christians responding in the, by bringing up the, the walls, as it were, and not seeing that the battle is between uh, an unquestioned view of the Bible and an unquestioned view of Western modern, you know, and the, the, mm-hmm. the two sides are the same coin, if you will, and, and not seeing that on one side you have 
um, got, you've got God's two books and you've got a, a, a collection of methods of trying to understand one of God's books. Mm. Um, and when you say God's two books, this is something that both the early church and Calvin and Luther um, talked about, but to make it explicit, what are these two books? Okay, so you're talking about, and I, I'm going to hate saying this, you're talking about nature uh, and the Bible. Nature's a terrible word because... Um, as soon as you say nature, the Christians again, the walls go up because, and I've said this before, you can't um, re-sacralize or re-divinize nature because, by definition, it's what quote unquote what's natural and what goes on, uh, and God can't interfere, sort of thing. When, when the church needs to reclaim nature as creation, mm. and then it's easy to let God in, in in that sphere, and then see that as having value and um, and purpose mm. and a voice that needs to be heard, and it can't speak up for itself. So gooses like me trying to say something on its behalf, which is, yeah, is awkward. Uh, sure. But, but, but a little less awkward than me when I write, um, and I'm trying to reflect upon Indigenous scholarship, mm. and then fine, I've got so much to learn. So I wrote a chapter um, in A Climate of Justice on the impacts of climate change on closing the gap in Australia. Yes. And then I had Brooke Prentice spend an hour with me decolonising my language, which I thought was already enlightened. Mm-hmm. Yep. So there's a... a the church needs to learn a lot of humility and those of us who would claim to speak for creation and for others need to learn a lot of humility too. And Mick, what I appreciate of you even making that story public is that you're modelling some of the ways that we don't have to be fragile around this, that we can go on the journey of actually um, uh, Brooke as an incredible in Aboriginal leader in the church having uh, the kindness and concern for your prophetic voice when it comes to this stuff to actually speak into it um, that in itself models some of our approach that instead of, a, oh, I'm trying, why don't you appreciate I'm trying, that even sometimes the way we approach these, um, we're not doing favours by giving voices to those whose voice has had no room. We're repenting. And th- there's no round of applause other than the angels that when sinners repent. But we shouldn't feel good about ourselves when we realise we've been doing something that actually dehumanises or silences another. And I appreciate you even sharing that publicly. What we're hoping to do in one of the passages that Doc Danny has chosen is Romans 8. Danny, would you read that for us? Um, sure. And we'll spend some time actually opening that up given uh, what we often haven't heard, whether it's from the sciences, the rest of creation, or particularly from worldviews from First Nations people the worldwide that hasn't seen nature as other but a part of God's, crea- God's good creation. So you told me to prepare for a question yesterday and today. Are we skipping that? No, no, no. Thinking hard we, about it. We sure are. I'd okay. just like you to read the <laughs> okay. text before we return to it. Yeah. So you said you start. You would start off with it, but you didn't. Do Surprise. That. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm starting at verse 18 of Romans chapter eight. For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is about to be revealed to us. For the eagerly expecting creation awaits eagerly the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation has been subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its servility to decay into the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans together and suffers agony together until now. Not only this, but we ourselves also having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves while we await eagerly our adoption, the redemption of our body. 
So we, before we open it up, this text that we've just read, when did the Holy Scriptures for both of you, Danny, I'd love to start with you first. When do you first remember encountering the Holy Scriptures? When, when yeah. did the Bible first show up in your life? Yeah, so this is the question that he prepared me for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking about it, and uh, I remembered uh, the very first time I can recall asking a question about the Scripture because it was just after I read it. And the problem was I was reading an old King James, and I started at the beginning because I assume that's what you do with a book. <laughs> and it was talking about how uh, God made um, coverings of flesh for them, or covered them in flesh. Mm. And I didn't understand what that meant. And I, and I went to my grandfather, and he th thought my question was a joke, and he started going on like following up the joke was I was legitimately thinking they're walking around with sinew and bone and they didn't have skin on. <laughs> and, and he thought I was joking, but I was serious. <laughs> I mean, that's how I was reading it. So that's how, what that's age, how I first remember. What was, age would you have been? So that probably 14. Right. Yeah. So the, um, the Bible then was something that was in your home and was in the air. Uh, yeah, it was around. It was around. <laughs> yeah. I think I asked for one from one of my, from one of my aunts or uncles, or maybe even it was my grandparents. Yeah, and yeah. was the Bible something that turned the world upside down? Did did you encounter it in ways that had revolutionary potential, or was it something that propped the world up as it was and uh, was actually a, a way of saying, no, 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 don't question, don't? It was a little bit of both. Mm. Um, I would say that uh, it certainly turned it upside down, but that wasn't until I, I came to faith. Yeah. You know, so there was a period of time where I was reading it and I was starting to go to church and asking questions, but it wasn't until that time where I definitely s surrendered and said, no, I, I'm, I'm now following, I'm a follower of Jesus and asked for forgiveness. And, and I knew enough to know that that meant that that was a big change and I felt the change too. And that's when scripture really awoke in me. And, and like I said, I hated high school and I continued to hate it, but I started going, like I was going to Bible studies with the, with the retired people and with wow. the youth group and I was wherever I could get it, I was going. Wow, and, and at the same time, it was also uh, affirming because I grew up uh, on my mom's, in my mom's family who many of them were strong believers. And so mm -hmm. at, at the same time, it was like, oh, this is why, this is why they sit around the piano and sing. Right. The old rugged cross and victory in Jesus and all right. of those things, and they do it so joyously. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, That's so it's time. To, yeah, it propped that up as well. So, yeah. Mick, for you, do you remember encountering the Bible for the first time? Oh, early teens, maybe. Uh -huh. yeah, we got the Gideon's Bible handed out in high school. Handed out in high school. Yeah, yeah. I remember and, that. Um, but that. Do you know why I remember that, Mick? Is that at my school they were thrown in the urinals and I'd just come to faith and I was so horrified and I didn't know what to do. Do I put my hand in the urinal and pull out Holy Scripture or do I, do I leave? Like, that, was, that was a big... So that's why I remember the Gideons being handed out. What a fantastic memory. Yeah. Um, look, my mum wasn't going to church at the time but I knew that the Bible was something that she turned to for refuge and I remember my dad was sick very often when I was a kid I remember one time him being in hospital and flicking through the front of the Gideons you know how it has that guide of this verses for this situation that verses for that situation which is 
probably terrible exegesis, but Lectio Divina has been around for a long time. So, <laughs> and I was going through and saying, oh, this verse, mum, and that verse, and writing them down for her. Um, and starting to read the Bible from the start and not getting very far and getting very lost and having no guide. Um, and that would have been the, the fundamental kind of theme of my childhood of having no real guide. Right. Um, no male role model. So martial arts was the thing for me and I was kind of a pseudo Zen Buddhist at the time and but thought I understood Christianity and then went to university and became to faith through a group called the Navigators. Right. So you know, baptised into the evangelical uh, pietistic type way of expressing your faith and so all very individualistic and so on. So my journey as a scientist and a uh, as a Christian, has been very much as for, for many years was a solo journey of trying to put the two together right. for me, and so uh, the Bible becoming revolutionary started obviously revolutionary for me as an individual and the things that you do and you don't do kind of check mm. list um, piety, uh, but it was a long, long time before the penny started to drop at say a political level or or um, a climate change type thing. Mm. You know, that's been a long journey. And I'm aware in terms of uh, these parts of both your stories that um, this is a text that's been used to justify um, uh, the, the literal genocide of First Nations peoples, um, let alone their, their culture and a justification of culture. And this is a text that is still used and um, sometimes I have people ask me, how can you be a, a Christian when like you believe science? As if believing science is like, do you believe in gravity? Yeah, gravity affects you regardless of whether you believe it or not. Like I always find it a bit of a, a funny question. Given that um, for these things that have been such important parts of your journey that this text is often used in such ways that um, delegitimate and um, don't take seriously those questions. What is it to open up Romans 8 for you both and see something different? You want me to start? Sure. Well, so one of the great things that I love about this is that you have, uh, it's not just humans talking, right? So you see mm. that there's another character at play here and the, and the relationship isn't just humans to God. Mm -hmm. There's another character here and the character each of the characters god and the person and the creation are themselves communities right yeah the trinity and the human community and the creation and not only do we have this third character now but this third character has itself a relationship with its creator yeah and a relationship with us so so that's there and once you see something like that, one of the temptations, and, the, uh, and I've heard it preached this way, is just to simply say uh, he's just using that as a, as a device. The, the, creator's just, or the creation is just personified just for this it's point. It's poetic. Yeah, it's just the poetic. The trees will and clap their hands. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And, to, and to flow on. But if you uh, look at the text, you see um, that really the creation uh, takes... Uh, center stage for a bit, and mm. the uh, verbs, so the the the, uh, the words of action are applied to the creation. So it's not some sort of background; it actually takes the front the front ground for a time. And and the other key about the the verbs that I find so interesting is the intentional way of saying that it's done together with us, and so that draws us in and says we are. There is something about our struggle 
that is the creation struggle and mm. back and forth. So it, it makes us, it ties this intimate link between us mm. so that as we groan, they groan. And as the creation groans, so we groan. And I didn't get to it, but if you look down at verse 26, then you find out there's another groaning, and that's the Spirit's groaning. Yeah. So you, again, you have the three all doing the same types of things. Um, so there's this relationship that we are often blind to, that we are intimately connected. Uh, and that's the way, uh, if you go back, God created it to be that way. And when we think that the creation, like you said, is an object... Mm. Um, and that we stand above it, mm. then we're not we're not treating the creation, and we're not treating ourselves the way the Creator has made us to be. Mm. And and suddenly we're uh, a lot closer to uh, a Hebraic way of seeing the world, uh, but also a way of seeing the world that is shared by your ancestors and mine. Yes, um, a, a way of seeing the world where we are a part of creation. Yeah, and um, there is. It's fascinating in terms of the study of ecology that um, the, um, you know, modern sciences are actually proving everything that a biblical mm-hmm. worldview actually says in terms of we're in a relationship with everything. Yeah. Um, so instead of an, an I-it relationship, uh, as Martin Buber put it, an I-thou relationship, and he's got this fascinating passage, this um, uh, Jewish philosopher of the 20th century, where he talks about contemplating a tree and as he's drawn into relationship with a tree. Um, but that can be very difficult for those of us who think that a biblical worldview is um, a Cartesian worldview. And mm-hmm. some of us might not know who Re- uh, Rene Descartes is. And yet I think, therefore, I am. The world is a machine there to extract, to exploit, to take what I want. You add Bible verses to that and you call that domination and then it's all going to burn anyway. That's not what's going on in the book of Romans at no, all. that's right. Yeah. And you have some great examples in church tradition. I think the the best is St. Francis. Mm. Uh, and one of his, I, I don't know if it was his last song or, or one of his last songs, the canticle of a brother, son, and sister moon, yeah. where he just, he, he, it's this glorious recognition that all of these creatures of which I am one are all singing the praises of its creator. And, and I join in the praise and so if you think about that, I've, I've been doing this thought experiment uh, as I've been studying this, and uh, I think everyone, every believer would say, God is worthy of all the praise we can give him, right? I think we'd all say amen to that. Mm. And then we would see from the Psalms and elsewhere that, uh, that the creation sings its praise. You know, even the rocks will cry out. Yeah. I think we would all say amen to that, right? Yeah. And, and the animals sing God's praise. We'd all say amen to that. And, and then I would... You know, and then I think, so do we really think he's worthy of all that? Do we think he's still even worthy of more than that? Mm. And I think we would all say yes. Um, and then you think about the fact that natural uh, extinction is one to five species a year. And yeah. we've, uh, we've made that times 1,000 to 10,000, depending on uh, the studies. Yes. And so it's like a thousand person choir and one of us, and we're only one, uh, we're slowly shooting and we're reducing the choir of praise. Yeah. And, and it's our choice. We're doing that of our own volition. And so we're reducing the praises that the creator deserves mm. and that we say that we give lip service to. But in our practice, we're actually silencing the choir. Mick, I know you're aware that uh, some people blame Christianity for the worldview that is doing the shooting um, while other species are experiencing 
um, uh, this kind of extinction and suddenly realizing that we're caught up in this web of reality and that what affects one directly affects all indirectly, to quote Martin Luther King, that if that is the reality, then the extinction of certain species is going to affect humanity. What is your response um, in your field as a professional when people are sometimes shocked to find out that you're also a Christian? Like, how do you answer those who so quickly go, but isn't it a Christian worldview that is causing climate change? Isn't it a Christian worldview that thinks that we're all souls going to be saved for some other reality and this doesn't matter? How do you answer that in light of the gospel, in particular reference to Romans 8? Well, it's a question of, you know, which world, whose Christianity? Yes. Uh, right, so yeah. it's, it's so speak to that, because if, if that isn't it, what's an alternative that actually is more orthodox, more biblical and better news? Oh, where, where to start with that? One of the things I get really excited about about Romans 8 one of, is firstly that it puts creation front and centre. Mm. But then secondly, it ties it so intimately with something that my evangelical tradition holds so dearly, and that's the resurrection. Yes. It, but, which is funny, though, because um, obsess so much about the cross itself but fail to see the resurrection as the proof of the pudding, if you will. Yeah. And in Romans, it's, look what happens at the resurrection. You get um, the redemption of all things, you know, the end of its suffering, most probably because it's suffering under us and our misrule and our, our, our poor relationship with it, which you know, goes back to well, further than Bacon's way of viewing domination and nature as a thing yeah. all the way back to the start of things. So that was kind of like a big eye-opener for me. It's like something that's so central to my Christian faith and then how that's tied to how our fates are shared. And so to opening that up to people and then saying, well, this is more than just some kind of rhetorical device when you look at it in context. Yeah. Why didn't the Huns want to go into Rome in the 5th century? Hmm. Because they cut down all the trees and the harbour silted up and the air was full of malarial mosquitoes. Paul was making direct observations about things. Wow. You know, Roman Senator Seneca saying, I had to leave Rome because the air quality was so bad. Yeah. And we tend to think that we hold science up on a pedestal and, and forget that it's just a Socratic method with technical bits and pieces <laughs> and then deny it to indigenous people. Yeah. deny it to the early church to say that they made simple observations about the way the world worked and understood their connection with it and could see when they were impacting it in a negative fashion. So, wow. you know, And, and also that it's a, a political text to challenge our own political presumptions of the time, that mm. the poet Horace said, oh, Caesar, you know, you're restoring bounteous crops to the land. And Paul's saying, no, not at all. Empire's not delivering on its claims to, to keep people well-fed and everything in order. The whole creation's groaning. So Paul's mm. making like a, a theological statement. He's making an environmental statement from what he can see, and he's making a political statement. And this you know, explodes your views of the world and challenges all your presumptions about how to read the text and the, that the way in which we see the world is the most natural way to see it. Yeah, and I would add too that the that exactly what you're saying uh, rightly centers us to recognize the world as theocentric and not anthropocentric because... And for those of us who can't spell those terms, let's at least define them so we know what we're talking about. So theocentric theos is in God. Yeah. So the reality is centered on God. And uh, anthropocentric is in uh, anthropos is in human. Sees man so, at the center, yep. and that's um, I know from talking at our uh, at our meal time that uh, the previous podcasts with uh, with Terry LeBlanc, uh, 
he, where he talked about the, the first creation story ending at the Sabbath. Yes. Right? It doesn't end with man, but mm-hmm. ending it with man and naturally reading it like that, that's very anthropocentric. Yeah. But recognizing that it actually ends with the Sabbath is because the Sabbath is God's and it's theocentric. Creation belongs to the creator. Yeah. And Romans 8 here, uh, with the resurrection as being so central, it's because the resurrection, that's that's God's doing. Yeah. Right. And that's God's power and that's his sovereign power. And that's what, that's the work he does for us. So the creation will receive its renewal from God yeah. in the way that you and I will. Mm. And so again, it's, it, it brings us into that circle of relationship. And suddenly we can often miss that, that Sabbath for Jewish people, like the practice of the Sabbath is actually a taste of the messianic age, the world to come, what they hoped for. Uh, what it puts here in terms of the redemption of our bodies. And the redemption of our bodies was experienced on the small each Sabbath by resting and enjoying that we're not made to merely make bricks for an empire, uh, whether it be Egypt, Rome, or our modern day empires, but we're actually made to enjoy the goodness of, of God. And the importance in Genesis 1 of it ending with the Sabbath is that Creation doesn't end with work, doesn't end with economy, but the enjoyment of our place in the natural ecology of things, that, that is radically different. And like we miss things like the hope is the redemption of our bodies. And all creation is apparently waiting for something that the children of God, through adoption, are experiencing now. What does that mean practically? What does it mean practically to, to live this hope that the rest of reality is one day wanting to experience. There's, uh, to introduce more fancy words, the idea of prolepsis, <laughs> which means living out some of the reality of the future in the present. Scrabble players, um, today is going to help you out. Prolepsis, use that in Scrabble. Big I've, I've preached on this passage several times. In fact, and, I'm doing it this coming Sunday. Uh, sorry? Define it. Oh, so prolepsis is the idea that there's a future... A reality which you can experience at least partially in the present. Yep. Um, so to, to go back a step though, I often preach on this passage and you'll get the person who will come and say, well look, it says that God subjects the creation to futility and God will redeem it, therefore there's nothing that you can do. Hmm. Uh, and, therefore, and, and even more so, they'll say, well climate change is part of what God is doing. Wow. And therefore you can't resist it. And my Much two like res- people say, well colonisation was something that God was doing. Yeah. Everything that happens is the will of God. Yep. Or... Should we go on sinning that grace may increase then? Which is my standard response. That and for the real hardline determinists, the Calvinists, I would say, well, um, Assyria did the job that God wanted to do, judging Israel, but all too well, and they still got judged. So Revelation 11, 35, Uh God will judge those who destroy the earth. Yes. Um, But the whole idea is is precisely that point. So we go on sinning that grace might abound. You're not going to wait till the end of time to practice being godly and being sanctified and being glorified, uh, you're, you're going to get on with the business of doing that now. It's uh, being, um, what's Jesus saying in the parable about being given small things and being yeah. faithful to those things. So yes. if God is in the process of renewing things right now, which is what he says in Revelation, in the Revelation, behold, I am making all things new, yeah. which is why you have the dual affirmation in Revelation 4 and 5, mm. that the lamb is worth worshipping because he's redeemed many for, you know, uh, out of the nations, but also God is worthy of uh, praise because he is creator. 
Mm. And so the whole business of God's renewal is in the here and now. And in fact, Terry Eagleton, who's not yeah. a yeah, fellow yeah. traveler, he gets this really, really clearly. That And he talks about the eschaton. It's really odd <laughs> being an atheist talking about the eschaton as being the summing up of all that, that those little moments that we see in the present. Yes. So get on with what the glorious future is going to be like now, knowing that God will bring it to completion, but that doesn't mean that you just sit back and, and wait for it to happen. Wow. Uh, I'm so aware when it comes to texts like this, if we start to take what you're both saying seriously, suddenly we have to take what science is, uh, scientists are saying seriously about what our world is facing and escaping to somewhere else is a a lot easier to swallow than we're actually reaping something for our grandchildren that is almost unspeakable. Where, where do we go given how serious what we're facing is and the fact that um, our nations aren't responding, big corporations still go unchecked and changing our light bulbs and driving Priuses or riding our bike instead isn't going to do it. Yeah. Well, it's a fundamental change on what you believe your community is. So huh. our community in the indigenous perspective is creation. It's all of creation. Mm. So, so in, in, uh, in First Nations, they'll, oft, they'll often talk about uh, the four-leggeds and we're the two-leggeds and the trees are the one-leggeds because all of those things have a relationship to the creator and I have a relationship with all of those things too and I need to honor them therefore as they honor me you know they give me their life when 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 we hunt mm. and and the plants give of themselves when we harvest and and there's a relationship and there ought to be thanksgiving and and if you think about our language like so, you know, with respect to what you just said, what what does this mean for my children? Mm-hmm. Well, how about what does this mean for everything you rely on right now? Well, wow. right yeah. with the land, because the indigenous perspective is that the land takes care of us, right? Mm. You're never going to be able to if you, you think about the fact that you can never give back as much as the land gives to you. Well, wow. at any point, right? So this this even uh, gently uh, tries to correct the uh, the otherwise good uh, evangelical push towards creation care. Uh-huh. Well, really? Uh, who's caring for who here? Wow. The creation is caring for you, right? And that's the conduit that the, that the creator uses to care for us. Uh-huh. And so that's why, again, in, in, in indigenous perspective, in my context, why because of that, we choose to fashion our language and our practice to remind ourselves continually of that. Mm. So that's why we'll talk about the earth as mother in the same way that, that uh, like I said, St. Francis sung about. Yeah. Because it's a reminder that I'm in a relationship that needs to be respectful because the mother, the mother earth, takes care of us, gives us all of these things, and we couldn't exist without that. Mm. And that ultimately all comes from the creator, of course. Mm. Right? And, and we rely on these things, and so we need to... We need to do more than just say, okay, I understand this text, but that needs to come to be able to shape and change the way we talk and uh, practice. Yeah. So what, is it, what does it mean then if you then agree with me that all creation sings the creator's praise? Well, how does that change your worship then? Yeah. Right. So we 
as indigenous peoples, try to incorporate nature into our practice. That's why we use uh, smoke and mm. the burning of certain things. It's, it's a way to connect ourselves with the creation community. Uh, community of creation is, I think, a great way to think of all of these things. And that's language that's been used by, uh, it was first, as far as I know, used by uh, Jürgen Moltmann. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's an Indigenous scholar named Randy Woodley mm -hmm. and uh, the eminent New Testament scholar, uh, Richard Bauckham. Yeah. I said, this is the right language to use. We need to think of ourselves as being a part of the community of creation Yeah. and, and recognize everything as fellow creatures. That includes yourself. You are a fellow creature of these that we all sit under the creator. But the, the question of the so what, it's like, well, that means it needs to change what you say. It needs to change how you talk. Mm. It needs to change how you think about the relationship that you're in and recognize your relationships aren't just to other humans. Yes, It's to the non-human creation as well. And suddenly we have a gospel that isn't restoring shalom just between people and right. between God and people, but between all things. Yes, because God, because God, in the scriptures, clearly cares about the land too. Yeah, and that's what's so amazing as you look at the Old Testament covenant, is that there's the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is give the land some rest, <laughs> because the land is mine; it's not yours. Mm. You don't have title over this. Mm -hmm. uh, that the land is mine, and I'm letting you live there, and recognize that by taking a Sabbath, but then even taking. A whole year off, right? Mm. And one of the intriguing things, if you go to the end of Second um, Chronicles, is one of the reasons that he takes them out of exile so that the land can finally get its rest. Yeah. Right? So does God really care more about the land than me? Well, that example shows that actually, yeah, he takes it pretty seriously that the land needs what, it, what he wants it to have. Wow. That's incredible. Mick, in terms of the horror of what we're facing and... How, how do we actually look honestly at what's happening? Um, we're, we're addicted to fossil fuels. We're addicted to... I find it hard to imagine ways of living that aren't just token responses to our ecological crisis. Um, it's easier to act like this was a, a nice podcast and switch off and go about life as it is. What does it mean to actually hear the cries? And, you know, what ways can we open ourselves given what we're facing and how much we want to escape and Gnosticism is pretty tempting to those who can't face their addictions. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, we have to challenge the idols in the church and the idols without the outside of the church. I went to a talk uh, once by Michio Kaku, who's a string theorist, and that's yeah. some fancy branch of physics, but he's also a futurist. And he was talking about the wonderful future and, and technology and this, that, and the other, like the, the Matrix world. And it's, it's very much that same escapist um, philosophy because when he was challenged by someone in the audience about climate change and other elements of the Anthropocene or impact upon the planet, he just dismissed it as something that will naturally overcome. Um, Elon Musk wants us to go to Mars. Mm. He's doing great things with Tesla and whatever else, but it, it's mirrored in the world around us. So I think we have to... to to challenge and rediscover what Ellen Davis says is that fundamentally to be made in the image of God is to engage in agriculture. So mm. if you want to re-engage with the earth, have a, a church or a community garden, grow stuff in your backyard. Um, but at the same time, and I, don't, I never want to move away from my own personal guilt and the way in which I buy into these consumerist worldviews, etc. But I was reading just recently that um, 
US $200 million is spent on greenwashing by fossil fuel companies. Yeah. Uh, and I can't think about the whole problem without thinking about Walter Wink and the powers yes. and how while we all engage in this and we all contribute to this system, yet nonetheless you can see that there are those things that, that we need to challenge directly, which is why I always turn to the, the socio-political aspects of Romans chapter 8, and that the claim that the creation groans is a direct challenge to the claims of any Caesar that things are okay. Well, wow. uh, And the political system that we see now, and it's whether or not it's a politician waving about a lump of coal or... or <laughs> or just simply business as usual that now the, that their answer to climate change is, all right, pumped um, uh, hydropower, but considering new coal-fired power plants or, or gas-fired power plants, which is always a, ever going to be an intermediate step, that there's just no recognition whatsoever. On a personal level, I think we really have to go through that morning. I wish Byron... Smith was here because he yeah. talked about the grief that we need to experience and the way in which we need to really be hit between the eyes. I mean, I read this stuff all the time, the stuff I can't bring myself to watch or read because it's so damn depressing. Yeah. It's so confronting. It's so soul-destroying. It's so keeping you up awake at night mm. because of thinking what well, the world could become largely uninhabitable in the lifetime of my son. What am I leaving behind for him? But I'm one of those people who grew up on wildlife documentaries as well who will mourn the loss of the polar bear or mourn the loss of a, a frog or a butterfly because it's a unique product of millions of years of evolution. And it's also a creation of God that God loves and, and as you've been saying, you know, uh, sings God's praises. So all these things weigh really heavy on me and I think we just need to embrace that first and foremost Yeah. Uh, and not respond with a simple trite, oh, God will fix everything. Uh, yeah, I do believe passionately in the resurrection and God will return and redeem things. But think of the suffering between now and then Yeah, that we're responsible for. Right. Well, not only that, too, like I, you think about the fact uh, you, we've mentioned N.T. Wright a few times in the, in the previous podcast. But N.T. Wright says whenever you think of the resurrection or the renewal of anything, it's always modeled on the paradigm of Jesus. Yes. And so as you look at Jesus, uh, when Jesus rose, he still had his scars. Mm. And so what happens to the renewed earth that changes fundamentally because of our arrogance? You know, when we blow up mountains to get the coal or when we bleach the coral reefs, you know, mm. what, what is that going to mean for God's good creation? Um, because it's still going to uh, bear the scars in some sense. And, and we're the ones that are, that are causing those scars. Mm. And there's a temptation even as we end this time discussing it now, to, to return to the happy note, to bring something in, like as a preacher, I feel it in myself right now. How am I going to, um, because we won't see the cross through resurrection unless we learn to sit in Holy Saturday and that space in between. And that takes a Christian maturity that often isn't encouraged because we so quickly ask for glib answers instead of allow people to sit in the space where God can meet us in, in, in this current hell, in the darkness, and find that Christ is in the dark, liberating in the places that we didn't think we would find God. And so as we end this discussion together, rather than what hope, how, where do we go to create communities that can really hope because we are looking at what is happening 
and are affirming that the gospel is good news? What, what resources, what connections, what simple steps can we take so hope isn't a cheap answer, but hope actually becomes something that requires all our lives to trust in the redemption of our bodies and all of creation? What are those simple things that, that we might do? Well, just one thing I was thinking as you were asking the question is you don't need to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. You are part of a community of creation where you are. That's correct. Right. And so, so how do you relate to the creator in the place that you are right now? And how do you honor the fact that there's land around you that is giving tirelessly and without thanks and often without a reciprocity back, Mm. you know, without the giving of that Sabbath to the land, Mm. Um, so, so it's not going anywhere. It's opening your eyes to recognize the relationships you're in, that you are interconnected with the environment around you. Wow. And then it's, and then it's honoring that, uh, and it starts with Thanksgiving and it's, and reminders and changing your language and changing your thought and then changing your actions, Mm. right. And keeping that in mind, because when you start thinking about creation as, uh, someone, something, uh, animals, uh, land pieces of land that you are in a relationship with, you start to care yes. <laughs> because it's not an object anymore. That's just there for my use. Yeah. You know, it's not, uh, you know, going to the analogy used earlier, it's not actually just a book mm-hmm. that I can pick up and read from and put down, mm. right? It's a relationship that you're in. It's a community that you're in. Mm. And so you got, we have, we need to open our eyes and recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it means to that. What that's what it means to indigenize. Mm-hmm. to become really, truly connected to the place you are. Wow. I planted a banksia, a banksia by my uh, back door because I wanted to attract local birds. Hmm. I've loved birds for the longest time. Um, and that was a way of um, me giving back something to them so that I could have the, the, the honour and the privilege and the... Um, the religious experience of seeing them going about their every day. Hmm. Uh, one of my most powerful religious experiences was seeing a platypus in the wild. Hmm. So anytime I encounter, quote unquote, nature, or the, the creation, my brothers and sisters who are not or more than human, hmm. on their terms, because <laughs> you can't manufacture those experiences, that's, that's a powerful thing. Um, we compost. Yeah. That's, a, I guess, a tangible way of giving back. Um, I think, yeah, if you can turn, both produce food, which as I say, Ellen Davis is, is, says is something that's fundamentally human, um, but give back to the creation by making space if you have a garden for, for the other. Mm. Um, I have a friend of mine, I can hear her speaking in my ears now that you should become vegan. Uh, I know that's, a, that's a, a growing movement that you take seriously the suffering of the other, you know, whether or not you believe that that's... Uh, a moral absolute and I'll be mm. part of the eschaton or you simply want to do your best to battle climate change and yeah. um, ease the but suffering of animals in factory farmed world. It is fa- fascinating that you look at the writings of whether it's John Wesley or uh, William and Catherine Booth um, or so many monastic movements throughout Christian history that giving up of meat is something that they did as they reflected on the world that is to come. But even if that's not where you end up theologically, the reality is that what's on your plate makes a bigger ecological footprint than what you drive or whether you drive at all. And even just dropping meat from a number of meals a week can reduce in a major way our personal contributions, which is is amazing that it's actually that simple. 
I want to thank you both. And I also want to hold up some of the examples that are in the room now because I think it's important to be able to imagine. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're in Melbourne, um, uh, it's not merely – and some people are aware that I was involved um, in – uh, I was one of the trainers of over 600 people that shut down the world's largest coal port. And sometimes we think serious action means that kind of dramatic. And there is a place for holding actions. There is a place for that kind of stuff. I want to acknowledge my mate Simon Moyle is in the room. And what Grace Tree do on a small scale, which might seem so humble, of actually their whole prayer life as a church together is revolved around local communities thinking about what it is to live in right relationship with the places they are and whether it's keeping chickens or, or growing food, uh, thinking about what's on your plate, how do we give up the flesh pots of fast food and uh, start to live in such ways that speak the gospel with what we put in our bellies instead of being controlled by the desires of our stomach. These are simple uh, little ways. Um, and part of that is a community where we can start to imagine, if you're part of a small group, to be asking the questions as we study this passage this week, how are we thinking about how the gospel is good news to all of creation? And is that something that, that we're praying about, that we're asking about? And then how do we start to lament what is happening at the moment and the lives that are being lost at the moment because we're addicted to a way of life that looks like death instead of resurrection. So we leave that with you as, as ways to, um, hopefully with a sense of sobriety, seek a real hope instead of like a, a cheap imitation of what the resurrection has claimed and redeemed, which is everything. Can I, can I say Please, one more Danny. thing too as you've said that? Uh, the other thing I think from the small things to the big things is that we need to recognize, and this is something that I'm still living into, that... Um, you need to recognize where you are that this is maybe very new to you mm. and maybe it's theoretically right and you assent to it but the practicalities of feeling that you're part of a community creation may not be there but there certainly are other people in your church and in your yeah. country right? Yeah. those who are indigenized to the place the indigenous peoples and so when they speak up about concerns about their environment and their land. We need to take those things seriously mm. because they're more deeply connected, meaning that they feel the disturbance of the relationship and yes. fear what, what that will mean in a way that you don't. And that's okay that you don't, <laughs> Yeah. but it's not okay that you're not listening. Wow, right? that's really great. That's really helpful. Danny, would, would you pray for us as a, a way of um, ending this time sure. together? Yeah, sure. Creator, we give you thanks. Thank you for the ways that you care for us. We thank you for the glorious hope of resurrection. We thank you that Christ is the one that we can look to as our perfect example. God, as we've been reflecting on what it means to read Romans 8 in the light of the places that we are, forgive us because we've been blind to things. We've closed our ears to things. And yet there is groaning around us. And we need to lament that. We need to let the Spirit's groaning well up in us. We need to join in the groaning. And we need to join in the fighting back as the light takes over the darkness. We want to be children of light. We want to celebrate our resurrection that's coming.
And as the renewal comes of the creation, Lord, help us really be, help us to be uh, honoring the places that we are, recognizing the community of creation that we're in, so that together we can do those things that you've called us to do. Lord, thank you for this place and this time and this discussion. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse.